toss endless online searching to the curb. Let us edit out the noise and bring you medicine without misinformation. Welcome to the MedEdit Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Jessica Gray. And me, Dr. Carrie Sorrell. Together, we will provide real, evidence-based medical information that will empower your health decisions, answer your questions, even the cringeworthy ones, and help you navigate the overload of information related to health and wellness. Let's sprinkle a little laughter and a whole lot of knowledge into your day. Hey, Carrie, are you ready to talk about heart health? Oh, I'm so ready, Jess. I'm so excited. My heart is beating a mile a minute. Okay, that's an adorable little joke today. <laughs> well, today we're touching base on some topics very close to my heart, literally. We will be talking with board certified cardiologist Dr. Haley Houston about coronary artery disease in women. Awesome. That's going to be so great. It's a great topic and a great guest. After we hear from Haley, we will switch gears a little bit in our, well, not quite Hollywood hype segment, but maybe what I would consider our first sports hype segment. Ooh. Maybe that's a thing now. Yeah. Anyways, we're going to discuss Commodio Cordis, which I'm sure I butchered, and sudden cardiac arrest in athletes. Remember Jamar Hamlin and his cardiac arrest on the field? We're going to break down what happened. Follow your heart friends, but make sure to take your brain with you. We are going to learn about heart disease in women today. Stay tuned after because we are going to have a sporty segment discussing sudden cardiac arrest in athletes. Today, we welcome Dr. Haley Houston on the show. She is a brilliant board-certified full-time cardiologist, a Mahjong fanatic, a crackerjack tennis player who works at Covenant Cardiology Associates here in Lubbock, Texas. We are so lucky to have her here with us today. Welcome Thank you. Edit podcast, Haley. Now, Haley, Thank I remember you. when you and your husband both started your intern year way back, like about a decade ago. Time I know. Ago. It feels like a long time, but then also went by in like a blink of an eye. So I agree. Well, again, welcome. And we're so happy to have you with us today. All Thank right. You. So why is discussing heart disease in women so important? That's what our viewers want to know today. Our listeners, our viewers, everybody's asking these same questions. We're talking about heart disease and women. Well, I think the most important thing to know is that heart disease or cardiovascular disease, which is more of the medical term, is the number one killer in women in the United States and in the world. And I think there's a misconception that it's breast cancer or other kind of cancers, but it's it's actually um, heart disease. In fact, more women have died from heart disease than all cancers combined. Well, that is actually terrifying, but that's, that's really, you know, we do talk about things like breast cancer all the time. We do the fun runs for breast cancer. I don't honestly feel like heart disease, especially in women gets as much attention. I actually believe this week is yeah. go red for women actually might've been today or tomorrow, yeah. yesterday. So that we have some things that go on for it, but it's definitely not something that we talk about as much with our family members or moms or sisters or loved ones. So I think it's a really important topic for our listeners to know about. So when you say heart disease, what does that actually mean or what does it include? Oftentimes my patients will say, oh, I have a family history of heart disease, but then they're just kind of lumping everything together, conditions such as arrhythmias, heart failure, heart attacks, or you know, they just say heart disease because somebody in their family's heart just might not have been healthy. But can you explain to us what we're actually talking about here? Yeah, that's a great question because I have patients that come in and say I have heart disease. And that means that's a huge spectrum of different 
diseases and illnesses. So it's very important to know what what kind of heart disease you have or what kind of heart disease your family members have. So the most common kind of you know heart disease that we think of is coronary artery disease, which is like blockages in the arteries that feed the heart muscle. Um, there's also heart failure, which is when the pump's not working, either the heart's not squeezing well or relaxing well, and then you can get a buildup of fluid. Uh, there can be valvular disease where the valves don't open all the way or don't close all the way. Um, there's electrical abnormalities where people have arrhythmias and there's many different kinds of arrhythmias. Uh, you can have inflammation of the sac that the heart sits in and that's called, um, pericarditis and it can lead to, um, pericardial fluid around the heart. Um, you can have problems with the vessel, the big vessel that leaves the heart called the aorta where it gets dilated. Um, there's congenital heart problems where uh, you're born that way and you have to deal with it your whole life. Um, there's also different kinds of cardiomyopathies, which is when there's something wrong within the muscle itself, either hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, there's different kinds of dilated cardiomyopathy. So it's a huge spectrum. So it's important to just understand what history you have or what history your family has. So you can give that information to your physician. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a lot for us to inform our listeners about in the future. So we're definitely going to have to have you back at some point, Haley, because it sounds like we have a lot of topics to cover. Today, we're going to primarily focus on coronary artery disease or the plaque buildup that you mentioned. This is what normally leads to a heart attack, correct? It can, but it's important to know that most patients actually who have coronary artery disease will never have a heart attack. Um, so coronary artery disease is when you have plaque or cholesterol buildup within the heart vessels and it can lead to symptoms. A heart attack is something that happens more acutely. A lot of times it happens when that cholesterol ruptures and you form a blood clot on top of that. And that happens very quickly. And that's when people come to the hospital with these big heart attacks that we hear about that can be uh, deadly. So tell me, so when we're talking about the buildup of the plaque in the arteries, is that something that's been going on long-term? Is that something that they've been experiencing for a while? You're talking about like symptoms that they're having with it. What symptoms are, how would you know if this is happening to you? Well, the heart is, the heart's smart. It's going to tell you when there's a problem. And so typically, you know, the everyday sort of stuff that we see is something that happens slowly over time. And when women specifically present with symptoms, they're going to present with more than one symptom. Okay. So the most classic symptom that both men and women experience is what we call chest pain, which I don't particularly like that terminology because most people don't describe it as painful. They describe it as heaviness, tightness, pressure in their chest. It can radiate up to their, their jaw and their neck and to their left shoulder and down their arm. And I think we're all pretty familiar with those symptoms. Um, but the thing is, is that women will present with more than one symptom. So they'll have like palpitations where they feel like their heart's racing. They can have nausea. They can have vomiting, real fatigue, um, just very tired, shortness of breath when they're doing things. And that tends to throw people off. So they start looking for other causes of their symptoms, whereas men typically just present with just the one symptom. Yeah. And that can be tricky. I mean, as women, we don't make anything easy, do we? No, we not at all. We have to make it as confusing <laughs> as possible. And, you know, I see that all the time in, in clinic where we get people or women in, especially with reflux type symptoms and differentiating that is 
run of the mill reflux from heart disease, it can be hard. So we really as doctors have to be paying attention to some of these atypical symptoms, especially when our women, female patients are presenting. And we're talking about women in general, but Haley, I just want to throw this out there. You know, what age ranges are we talking about? So there's, you know, let's say somebody goes in to see Carrie and they have what they think is maybe acid reflux, you know, and they're in their 30s or their 20s. And they're like, you know, how do I know if this is my heart or this is, you know, acid reflux? Or, you know, are we talking about these same symptoms are the same when you're in your 20s having chest pain, 30s, 40s, 50s, or does it does it make a difference? It, age matters. Um, age and risk factors. And so that's when, you know, when you have a patient, it's really uncommon for women in their 20s to ha- come in with coronary artery disease, even men in their 20s. It's very, it's very, very, very rare. Um, but in your late 30s and 40s, especially if you have risk factors, then you that might be when you start getting stress tests and cardiac CTs and things like that to kind of figure that out, you know, to figure out if this is cardiac or maybe it is GI. It's difficult to say because you have to, when you look at the symptoms, you also have to look at the risk factors to be able to say, do I need to do a stress test and expose this patient to radiation? Or can we do more, you know, conservative things for now? Sure. And I, I like that you mentioned risk factors. Uh, what are some of the risk factors we're talking about for coronary artery disease? Well, there's the traditional risk factors that we think about that affect men and women. And that's, you know, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, smoking, obesity, uh, you know, living a sedentary lifestyle. There are also women's specific risk factors that I think get glossed over a lot. And those are pregnancy related risk factors, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which only affects women, autoimmune diseases, which is just more common in women, and then anxiety, depression, and PTSD, which tends to affect women more than men. Okay, that part is super fascinating. I think that's something that most people, even other primary care doctors and stuff may not actually think about are the risk factors specifically for women that you're talking about. So when you're talking about, let's say, high blood pressure, why is that typically more risk factor for women? What's going on with the background with that? The thing about high blood pressure to know is that for one, it does, women don't typically start in general, don't develop high blood pressure until after menopause. Okay. But the thing about high blood pressure in women specifically is that it's very much, um, correlated to your weight. So if you're a woman and sometimes it's just bad luck and you have high blood pressure, but if you're a woman and you're overweight or obese and you lose weight, you're going to have more of an effect on bringing your blood pressure down than a man would. Okay. So women can, we can in some ways control um, our risk factors for high blood pressure by just controlling our weight alone. Now, high cholesterol is another, you know, big risk factor for coronary artery disease and men and women, but for some reason, it's just not thought of that women, you know, can have high cholesterol and that it can lead to um, heart attacks and strokes. And so women don't get offered cholesterol medications a lot. They're just told, hey, just work on your diet, work on your exercise. And then it doesn't seem like it gets checked again for a year or two years. And that's, we should be checking it, you know, every three to six months. But some of that is also on us. I mean, women are, you know, more likely to refuse cholesterol medications. They don't, want to, you know, see themselves as having high cholesterol and seeing themselves as having that risk factor for cardiovascular disease. That's really interesting. I know I can say personally, I'm one of those people. I have the familial hypercholesterolemia where my cholesterol looks absolutely terrifying. I rarely see patients with worse cholesterol than I do. And I've been a vegetarian for 20 years now. I work out what, like all the time. time. I do all the things that I think are right. But then 
I sit there and my cholesterol is terrifying. And so I've had to become one of those people that says, okay, I'm just going to have to be a cholesterol medication person my whole life. And it's really not that big of a deal. Can you kind of tell us what these myths are that people come in and they're so terrified of the traditional cholesterol medicines or the statins and they tell us, oh no, I can't be on that. I've heard these horror stories. Can you kind of dispel some of those myths for people like, even like me, you know, that would need this medicine, even if they are doing everything else right with their diet and their exercise, and we just can't get around those genetics. Yeah. So I have this discussion with at least one patient a day about statins and statins um, and the medicines referring to the most common ones are atorvastatin or rosuvastatin. They've been around for a long time and they have a lot of negative press. But the thing to know about statins is that they can reduce anybody's relative risk of cardiovascular events by 30%. Okay. And that's the only oral medication that, that does that. It treats both LDL, which is your bad cholesterol, which is linked to stroke and heart attacks, and your triglycerides. And at at certain, now not not all statins are made equal, but your high-intensity statins can reduce these numbers by 50%. Now, the, the negative press about statins is that the muscle aches. Well, they don't want their muscle, people don't want their muscles to break down. So muscle aches um, when you're taking a statin is relatively common. I mean, 5 to 10% of patients will experience it. But the thing to know about that, and people don't realize, is that it's reversible. You stop the medicine, it's gone within 24 to 48 hours. And if you're still having muscle aches after a week of being off of your statin, it wasn't your medicine. It was something else. You injured yourself or you have arthritis or something. Now, the rare, the the scary side effects of statin where you actually have muscle breakdown that we can see in your labs, that's super rare. That only occurs 0.5% of time. And then there was a news article several years ago, actually, when I was in fellowship, it made it very difficult to do my job, um, (laughs) that statins were associated with dementia. There have been several studies looking into that. We have not been able to find a causative, you know, link to that. I think people need to remember that most people who take statins are older and dementia is seen more often in older people. And so I think it's more of an association, not a causation. Um, There's also something about statins causing diabetes. If you're not diabetic, a statin is not going to push you in diabetes. Most experts agree that if if you're probably were pre-diabetic and you were going to become diabetic either way. So statins are are good medicines for the people that need them. And I think it's something you just got to talk to your doctor about to see your risk because it's proven to reduce your risk of stroke and heart attack. I think that's a great point because that's exactly, I mean, I can have my audible yes, which when you're saying that with the dementia is because I get asked that a lot yes. in the last several years because of that one topic. Oh, you know, that causes dementia, which is so funny because one of the things I'll talk to them about is then, you know, plaque buildup can cause other things like vascular dementia, where you can have mini strokes and things, and that actually does cause dementia. So there's other things that are more likely to cause that from not taking your stat and not treating your cardiovascular disease than it is a side effect of this medication that really, honestly, I think all the cardiologists would put in the water if they could for all of us. For sure. The other thing we get talked about too, is it's going to ruin your liver. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure Carrie, you can speak to this, but like we used to check liver functions when we would check our lipid panels, our cholesterol panels. Now that's not even recommended anymore, unless you have underlying liver disease. Yeah. I probably get like five patients a week from usually not their cardiologist, usually some other doctor that's also getting labs on them and the liver enzymes are elevated and they're like, well, we got to take you off your statin. You got to go see your liver doctor and see if you can be on these. And almost 100% of the time, my answer is yes. 
you can be on them unless they're like, again, some super rare thing. And maybe we still have to check for underlying liver disease because a lot of these patients who have diabetes, heart disease, they're also going to have fatty liver and, you know, other issues that are not related to the statin itself. But I absolutely see that all the time for sure. I did. I remember asking this in practice one time and asking when I was actually by myself as an attending, I was like, does this ever actually happen? Do I ever actually, am I taking someone off of a statin very often for their liver disease? And it's almost never happens in primary care. So if your primary Mm -hmm. care doctor or somebody is telling you, you need to go check it, obviously go talk to your liver doctor, your cardiologist, but be aware that there's a, perhaps a chance that they're going to say, no, don't worry. The risk, way, I mean, the benefit way outweighs the risk of being on that. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's not going to happen. It's not going to shut your liver down or anything. Right. I think the only time I've ever said yes is maybe like, again, when they're acutely ill for some yeah, reason, you know, right. minimize any, you know, injury. It's not necessarily the medicines doing anything. It's just, you don't want to add more fire to the flame at that point. But I agree. Mm-hmm. And, and I like that you mentioned that it's good to have it on the people who need it. So generally, which group of people are you recommending that should be on statins? So anybody who's ever had like a stent in their heart or bypass surgery or been told they have coronary artery disease, they need a statin forever. Most type 2 diabetics actually need statins in, in general. And then we look at other risk factors such as if you get a calcium score, what is your calcium score? If your overall risk is greater than like 7.5%, you can be put on some sort of statin. And there's ways that we can calculate those and calculate that risk. And you don't have to see a cardiologist to get that risk calculated. I mean, Jessica could do it in her, I mean, you know, primary doctors can do this all the time. If it's greater than 20%, then you definitely need to be on a statin. And that has to look, do with your cholesterol, your diabetes, if you're a smoker, your age, all those things. Yeah, and I think it's important to emphasize that based on that is why you should be seeing your doctor. You're seeing seeing mm-hmm. Jessica, your primary <laughs> care physician, because you won't know if you're one of these people if you don't see anybody. So super important. And I, I know you just mentioned diabetes or abnormal blood sugar levels as a risk factor. And some people may not know this, but heart disease is the leading cause of death among adults with diabetes. It increases your risk of having a stroke or a heart attack by twofold. Yes. In fact, diabetes in women has a higher risk of cardiovascular events compared to diabetes in a man. They both, both across the board in men and women, it does raise your risk, but more so for women. I think that's a really important statement there. All of these things, and I guess, obviously we're a little biased, we're all women here, but we're all women in medicine who recognize that there is a disparity and a discrepancy in how women are sometimes treated in medical settings. And sometimes even our colleagues that are women or or men don't know these differences that need to be paid attention to and talked about that you know, we do have these higher risks associated with some of these illnesses that maybe men have the same one, but there is more of a higher risk for us. But mm-hmm. we're going to talk about diabetes more in the future episodes for our listeners. And so definitely listeners, make sure you check that one out. We'll have one of our awesome endocrinologists on board too. We'll talk about what diabetes is, how we di- diagnosis and common treatment options too. Now, Haley, what are some other risk factors that tend to be seen more in women when it does go back to heart health? So you have for pregnancy-related risk factors. Um, those, of course, are only seen in women. And there's a slew of them, but the more common ones are gestational hypertension, gestational diabetes, uh, preeclampsia, early delivery, not losing pregnancy weight in like the within six months of delivery, not all the way, but you know, a, a, the vast majority of it. Those things all increase your risk for cardiovascular events later in life. And the thought is that 
Pregnancy is the body's natural stress test to predict what will happen later because there's a lot of physiologic changes that happen in pregnancy. In fact, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology recommends that if you have one of these pregnancy-related risk factors like that I spoke of, you get a cardiovascular screening within three months of delivery. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to see a cardiologist, but you need to have your primary physician looking at you and checking your cholesterol panel. Because a lot of women, you know, in their 20s and early 30s, they're not having their cholesterol checked. Um, You need to check, you know, your A1C or screen for diabetes. Somebody needs to ask you about your family history. You need to start monitoring your blood pressures. You may need to give a urine sample to see if you're spilling protein into your blood or excuse me, into your urine. And if that is abnormal, then we need to start treating you now to prevent bad things from happening later on, like stroke and heart attack. That's a really, really good point. So you're saying that history of things, especially me being pregnant now, it's always a good time to think about those things too. But in case, you know, somebody was diagnosed with gestational diabetes, gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, or early delivery, they need to Mm -hmm. back up after they deliver. Mm -hmm maybe a primary care physician or something like that and have these certain tests done, the lipid panel, the A1C. I think I remember one of the studies at some point saying that if you had gestational diabetes, you were at least 25% uh, more likely to have diabetes later on, a post-pregnancy later in life. So I think that's a huge factor for people to talk about more openly. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. For anything yeah. like this as a pregnant woman, or if you're going to get pregnant, is if you have a blood pressure problem or you have a blood sugar problem while you're pregnant, make sure that's followed up on because it may be something that you deal with later on. And of course, being me- married to a neonatologist, I find all of these topics fascinating as well. I mean, having gone through a lot of them being pregnant myself, but also hearing about the complications they cause on a daily basis. I think it's super interesting that not necessarily coronary artery disease by itself, but heart disease in general that we talked about at the beginning of this episode is actually the leading cause of maternal death. So that's a death during pregnancy at the time of delivery or soon after. So again, we just want to emphasize how important it is to follow these things, follow with your doctor and follow up. And it's, it's easy to say that now, but once you've had a baby, the chaos that happens after mm-hmm. that you forget to take care of yourself. So again, it's, it's just important to remember to take care of yourself as well. I know our and listeners- I do find that a lot of women, you know, and men too, in their 20s and 30s, they don't see physicians regularly. And you need to be seen at least once a year and have, and, and sometimes, and I get this, like OB-GYNs, they're not focused on the cholesterol, you know? So right. that's why you need to have a primary doctor who's going to look at everything and not just when was your last pap smear. So Again, you know, people think that these issues that happen in pregnancy are isolated to pregnancy and they're not. They're telling you what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. And you're right. A lot of women, especially in their 20s and 30s, consider their OBGYN their primary care doctor. Like you'll ask mm-hmm. them who that is and that's who they'll tell you. And they're that you're right. That's not their focus. That's not what and that's not what they're trained on. And so mm-hmm. you need to have that. I said you need to have your Jessica again. <laughs> you need to have your Jessica checking these things. I know Dr. Gray. <laughs> I know our <laughs> listeners probably can predict the answer at this point, Dr. Houston. But what are some of the ways we can lower our risk of coronary artery disease and hopefully things like heart attacks, strokes that can result from that a lot of times? So the the biggest thing I would say is if you're a smoker, you gotta stop. Okay. Smoking is just a huge, I mean, we y'all could do a whole segment on how bad smoking is. Oh, you will. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's you know, causes cardiovascular issues, peripheral vascular issues, strokes, all those things. Smoke stopping when I, I tell my patients, I'm like, I know it's gonna suck. It's gonna be really hard to do it. Um, you know, 
President Obama struggled to stop smoking. And I mean, regardless of what you think of him politically, like if he can't stop, like I understand it's hard. It's very difficult. There are medicines that can help. And you need to talk to your your primary doctor about those to, so that you can stop. So that's the biggest thing I would say is stop smoking. The other things are things that we know intuitively. We need to eat a healthy diet. The diet that's recommended by the American Heart Association is the Mediterranean diet. And I, I listened to Dr. Warmuth's um, discussion on um, autoimmune diseases, and that was one that she recommended for autoimmune diseases. So there's there's something correct in it. It focuses on lean meats like fish, chicken, turkey, some pork. You need to limit your ground beef. 60 to 70% of your plate needs to be green leafy vegetables. If it's white, you need to think twice. You need to limit your alcohol. Um I love a glass of wine as much as the next person, but there's a lot of sugar in, al- in, in wine and, and in other ha- alcohols. The other thing is you need to keep moving. I find that when my patients stop moving, when they become you know, wheelchair bound, that's when bad things happen. They have skin breakdown. They start having you know problems with memory, all of that. So exercising now will keep you more mobile later in life. Women, when we go through um, menopause, we lose our we lose our bone density. We also lose muscle mass later in life and exercise can help preserve those. So stop smoking, get down to a healthy weight by diet and exercise to keep your heart healthy and to keep the rest of you healthy. Yeah. And that's not just as, you know, us saying that as doctors, we have to live that as patients too. And all of us we do. do. As many of my friends know, it's, I took up tennis, which I'm terrible at, but I took up <laughs> For the main goal of trying to find something fun to stay active, again, for all of those, just to decrease my risk factor of all of those things. I have a high-risk family history as well as a high-risk personal history. And so it's not just something we tell our patients. It's something we try to live as well. And I know like we talk about all the time, we joke like that that's like my side project is I love to exercise and work out, but I didn't used to be like that. No, no. <laughs> like in college, I would never do that. And even it started kind of in med school, picking it up and then honestly, the endorphins you get and how much better you feel afterwards and how honestly, even on the mental health aspect, it's so beneficial. Now it kind of Mm -hmm. becomes an addiction where you sit there and you're like, when was the last time I worked out? Or my husband looks at me because I'm extra grumpy and he's like, hmm, maybe, maybe you need to, do you need some alone time to go to the gym? And I'm like, yeah, probably that's a good idea. (laughs) Your heart health, like we talked about with cholesterol and all those things. It's just something small that can be beneficial in all these ways that we're talking about in you know, for the diet with autoimmune disease prevention, cardiovascular disease help. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk to endocrinology as well, and they'll have plenty to say about your blood sugar. But it just really, really comes down to what we already know intuitively, eat well and keep moving. So um, Haley, can you also explain one thing to me? I feel like this has become a newer thing. And so a lot of people may not know much about it. But people, you mentioned before, a CT calcium score. Can you explain what Mm -hmm. that is and why somebody would be using that versus maybe not um, an invasive stress test or, you know, another primary care doctor can order it or cardiologist can order it. Can you shed some light on what that actually is? Sure. So um, when you have, in, in simplistic terms, when you have cholesterol buildup inside your vessel, your body tries to heal itself of that. And the way that it does that is by laying down calcium. Okay. So a calcium score specifically is a CAT scan of your chest. It has low dose radiation. There's no contrast involved. And the computer essentially counts um, the amount of calcium you have within your vessels. And it, it spits out a number. Now, if your calcium score is zero, then that suggests that you have you don't have any significant coronary artery disease. 
If it's from zero to 100, then it's, it's very mild, but you technically do have some degree of coronary artery disease. And then if it's 300 or more, that's considered severe. Um, and it can get up into the thousands. So it's not something that you do in patients who are symptomatic, meaning they're having chest pressure, tightness, shortness of breath. You would do a stress test or a cardiac CT, which are both, which are a little different. A calcium score is helpful for people who are asymptomatic, who are trying to figure out what is my risk. And the biggest question you want to, that it's trying to answer is you have a person who maybe they, maybe it's like you, Jessica, you have a little, maybe your cholesterol is just a little high and you know, you're, I'm just making, I know you're not, but let's say maybe you're in your late forties now and you're kind of on this border zone of, should I start a statin or a cholesterol medication? Well, if you have a calcium score of zero, then probably not. And it's something that we can kind of keep monitoring. However, if your calcium score is, you know, in the fifties or, you know, and, and there's, and there's not like a perfect number, but if the calcium score is elevated, then we might say, okay, it's time to put you on a cholesterol medication because the things that statins do is one of which they lower cholesterol. But the second thing that they do, and no one talks about, is that they have this anti-inflammatory effect where the cholesterol buildup that you have, it stabilizes it and it prevents it from breaking open because that's when people come in with the massive heart attacks. And so it kind of helps flush out those people on when is it time to start a cholesterol medication. And if your calcium score is really high, then we might put you on baby aspirin in addition. That's great information. That's really helpful. And maybe also helpful for somebody who has some fears about a statin or is just reluctant to get on Mm -hmm. one. Maybe it can be another factor that we take into consideration with pushing that decision forward or backwards, kind of depending on their other risk factors as well. Absolutely. And if you're getting to the point where you're needing something like you mentioned the special ICT or stress test, that's when you're going to see somebody like Dr. Houston to talk to through all of those things. So I'm glad that we were able to cover, you know, all the risk factors and discussion about what coronary artery disease is or general heart disease in women, because remember, women tend to have worse prognosis and a higher mortality rate than men from heart disease. Mm -hmm. Definitely want to make sure it's something you're talking to your doctor about. All right. Yeah, you need to be your own advocate. You need to know your numbers. You need to know what your blood pressure is. You need to know when your last cholesterol was checked and what your numbers are. And you need to know what your A1C is. Are you pre-diabetic or diabetic? And you need to make sure that those things are checked once a year. I agree. And I feel like if we did ever have a t-shirt made, we could definitely say like, know thy history. Like that would be (laughs) the back would say like, know thy family. Oh, that's good. (laughs) Because we've said this so many times, like you've got to know your own history, keep track of it. I know Mm -hmm. a lot of people think this, but you know, you're going to go from person to person, practitioner, doctor, and you got to keep track of these things. You cannot expect that the system will keep track of it for you. That'd be great if it did, but that's not what happens a lot of times. And then second, you got to talk to your family about what your family history is for sure. Okay. So we're going to switch over to what I personally have dubbed the first sports hype segment, guys. I'm very excited. I'm like Taylor. I'm in my NFL era. (laughs) I'm excited. (laughs) So about the big game coming up, which by the time this happens will have already happened. So we'll see who won. But yeah, let's do it. 
So I'm sure many of you guys remember the terrifying moment in the Bills versus Bengals game on January 2nd of last year when a safety for the Bills, DeMar Hamlin, collapsed on the field after making a tackle. We're following some late-breaking and upsetting news out of Cincinnati tonight. This is actually something that's just happened at the Monday night football game tonight between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Buffalo Bills. Um, it happened right before the top of the hour. It was in the first quarter of the game. A safety for the Buffalo Bills named DeMar Hamlin, he's in the number three jersey in white there, um, he made a tackle against another player, and then he fell to the ground. Yeah, I remember watching that game, and it was terrifying. I mean, Hamlin did suffer cardiac arrest and was attended by medical personnel for 19 minutes on the field, including CPR with a return of, a return of pulse, thank God. Her reports, this was due to something called, which I'd never heard of, and I'm probably going to say it wrong again, but commodio cordis, which is basically when you get such a hard blow to the chest that it actually causes your heart to switch to an abnormal heart rhythm. Haley, have you ever heard of this or seen it? I mean, I, I'd heard of it, but it's so rare. I've never seen it in person. The only time I saw it was when I was watching that football game. So, yeah, it's super rare. Sources say there is only about 30 cases a year and usually seen in ball-related sports when players take a ball directly to the chest. It can be reversible with use of a defibrillator to restore a normal rhythm. Sadly, only about 60% will survive. And if they do not, it is usually because of damage to the brain from a lack of oxygen when that heart wasn't being able to pump oxygen to the brain. Absolutely. And, you know, we have not heard of any underlying cardiac conditions in this specific case, but other causes of collapse of athletes from cardiac arrest could be due to an underlying disorder. If you stress a heart that's not working normally too much, it eventually can stop working altogether. Thankfully, this is also not common with reported rates only from about 1 in 40,000 to 1 in 80,000 per year among the NCAA or National Collegiate Athletic Association athletes. Increased risk has mostly been seen in, in male gender, black race, and basketball participation, which I found fascinating. Mm -hmm. And the, it, specifically the risk among Division I basketball players, which I'm going to make sure Jess hears this, uh, can mm -hmm. be estimated at more than 10 times in overall athlete population. You cannot screen for specifically what we talked about with Commodio Cordis, which is a bad hit in a bad spot at the, at the bad time. But since sudden cardiac arrest can't be due to online disorder, and there are some screening protocols that e exist for this exact reason. I know Haley and Jessica, you both have been involved with this kind of screening before. Can you guys tell us what diseases you can screen for, who you screen for these underlying conditions that can increase risk, and how you did that screening? So... Um... The screening, what you can screen for are things like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is when there's um, obstruction of the heart, of the, excuse me, of the blood leaving the, uh, leaving the heart and tends to be genetic and can run in families. There are some arrhythmia um, issues that can cause sudden cardiac death, and those can be genetic and run in families. So in general, in athletes, especially like if we're talking junior high, high school, I would say that screening needs to begin with a pediatrician and going into family history and a good physical exam. And if you hear, you know, a murmur or something like that, then that would trigger an echocardiogram and other more invasive testing to find that out. Luckily, in the college and uh, professional levels, there's screening, which I know Dr. Gray and I are involved with Texas Tech, is more regulated by the conference and they those players all get 
a baseline EKG and kind of a limited echo to look for big things. And then if, if that shows something abnormal, they'll get more um, intense uh, t- uh, testing. But screening is very controversial um, on who you screen and uh, when you screen them because of the just the number of like student athletes. And I'm talking more on a junior high and high school level in the, in the nation and over the world. So it, it gets a little bit more difficult. I think that's really important. Like um, Haley said, she and I both work for Texas Tech and do some screening with the athletes. I'm a team physician for the women's basketball team. And we are, you know, we're a D1 team in the Big 12 for the part of the NCAA. And I'm really thankful that the mm-hmm. NCAA and the Big 12 have recommendations for us to help guide us to make these decisions because it is controversial. But when I think about like my son being and playing mm-hmm. sports and things like that, you know, he's young right now. He's only three. So we're talking about like T-ball at this moment. But, you know, mm-hmm. as he gets older in middle school and high school and those little questionnaires they send home for those physical exams as pre-participation exams. Yeah. It's really important that we take that to their pediatrician, their family practice doctor and have them look at it with our child talk about personal history, family history, really in depth, you know, fill that out, be as honest as possible, make sure that we are taking that seriously. Because yes, majority of time, we're going to be at a clearance and you can go. But there's a rare cases that it is something that needs to be followed up on like with a cardiologist. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I remember dealing with this with a I had a cousin who ended up having uh, an arrhythmia, and he actually ended up having WPW, which will Yeah, exactly. Not necessarily related to this episode, but in general, I remember, again, when my aunt and uncle got that information being like, you know, slightly terrified for a little bit, you know, I mean, he was an athlete in high school. And, Mm -hmm. you know, basically, I think to summarize all that is that if you have them in the junior high, high school level, you know, you take your kid to their doctor, they listen to see if there's any abnormal in that love dub rhythm that we say we've talked about before when they're listening with their stethoscope. And if it is, they'll send you to a specialist for further evaluation. I think that's kind of what we want to get across. And then above that level, you've got great doctors like Dr. Houston and Dr. Gray to make sure that you are taken care of. Let's put it that even though, again, we don't have all the evidence and all the answers for sure. And I think the other thing is don't ignore like the, your symptoms. If you're, if your child is coming to you and they're saying, my heart is just racing when I'm exercising or I'm getting so dizzy or I feel like I'm going to pass out, you need to take them to go get evaluated. So don't, the heart tries to warn people. And so don't ignore the symptoms. Worst thing that happens is that you get a negative screen and they clear you and maybe you were just dehydrated that day, but don't ignore the symptoms. Awesome. And I know you mentioned the echocardiogram is kind of the biggest thing that you would look at if if an athlete gets sent to you or, you know, somebody Mm -hmm. who concerns and that's, you know, basically an ultrasound with that specialized probe where they look at the heart to look at structure and function. Um, Is there anything else, you know, study wise that once they get to that level that you usually consider doing? So if they are having symptoms of, you know, pounding in their chest, like palpitations, or they're feeling dizzy or lightheaded, then what we can do is something called a cardiac monitor, which is like a little patch that we stick on the chest and we're looking for arrhythmias and we can put it on for as little as 24 hours and as long as 30 days. We also sometimes will do exercise uh, treadmill stress tests where we put them on a treadmill and make them exercise in a controlled environment. So that way we can, we're trying to recreate those symptoms to see, you know, kind of what happens uh, from an electrical standpoint. Uh, There's more kind of, you know, if we're really concerned about a cardiomyopathy, uh, we can get cardiac MRIs, which look at the muscle in, in great detail. Or if we're concerned about a coronary anomaly, meaning there's an anomaly with the way that the coronaries are feeding the heart muscle, and that's something that happens at 
you know, in uterus essentially, and is a, a birth thing, then we can do a cardiac CT. So we have a lot of tools at our, you know, disposal to look into those things. But if you're having, if you're having symptoms, then we need to take a look and make sure. Fascinating, fascinating information, especially about sudden cardiac arrest in athletes, more than I thought I was ever going to know about the topic. <laughs> um, I think it's important, again, to remind listeners that no matter how good the screening program in, is, you're not going to identify all athletes who are at risk, which is why it's important not only to have screening, but also I'm going to put in a plug to learn CPR. Like if we have community mm-hmm. members that know how CPR and one of the great thing, I think that come out of all these stories like the DeMar Hamlin or other ones that I've read about in preparation is, you know, placing defibrillators and things like these in areas that are easy to use and people can find at sporting events, for example, for that exact reason. So again, I think that's also another thing that we can do as a community, which also is a big help besides outside of just screening. Well, we've reached the end of another great episode. Now you know how women differ from men when it comes to coronary artery disease, the symptoms to watch out for, and how you can decrease your own risk. We've also discussed causes of sudden cardiac arrest in athletes in our first ever sports hype segment. We want to thank Dr. Haley Houston for being a wonderful guest. Please come back and hang out with us anytime. You're amazing. Thank you, guys. It was fun. Yes. Thank you, Haley. And again, if you're in Lubbock and you need a good cardiologist, go see Dr. Houston over at Covenant. Come follow us to learn about facts about your health. Like this episode, subscribe, turn on notifications for new episodes, tell your friends and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to the MedEdit podcast. Please click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information about this episode, And to learn how you can reach Dr. Carrie Sorrell and Dr. Jessica Gray, please visit today's show notes. And don't forget, click that follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information and content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you need medical advice or help, contact your personal physician. The views and opinions of the guests do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Dr. Jessica Gray and Dr. Carrie Sorrell. This podcast should not be considered as an alternative for medical advice, diagnosis, or confirmation of an illness or disease. Please seek assistance from your personal health practitioner.